right, and welcome to Etc. Etc. I'm your host, Aug Stone. Got a very interesting show for you today. A couple things before we get to the main interview. It's been great to see that so many people are digging my Nick Cave's Bar book. I just got word that it's available in Grimey's Record Store in Nashville, which is one of my favorite record shops. That's where I discovered Charlie Bliss one day in 2018. And they're one of the most exciting bands I've heard in recent years and a great live show, too. And Book Booned in Berlin is carrying it also. Awesome to have it available in Germany, which is, of course, where so much of the story takes place. The book is about the time in 1999 my best friend and I flew from New Jersey to Berlin to find the bar that a complete stranger told me Nick Cave owned in Berlin. This was, you know, before the days we were all on the internet all the time, and we went without doing any further research whatsoever. And the trip was, predictably, a disaster. Not least because Nick Cave never owned a bar in Berlin. And we got hold of some absinthe on our second night there, then had a two and a half day hallucinatory hangover that saw us wind up in Prague. You know, while we were trying to find a non-existent bar in Berlin. But it was a lot of fun to look back on now. Louder Than War just called it like a Louis Theroux weird weekend mixed with Withnall and I. I was on Hong Kong National Radio last weekend talking about it, which was a lot of fun. And you can get the book anywhere online and in the good independent bookshops. There's also a live album of me telling the highlights of the story. It's at augstone.bandcamp.com and Apple Music and all those. The book goes into a lot more detail. and I'm glad people have picked up on the whole record shopping aspect of it, too. Recently, I learned that in the early to mid-80s, there actually was a bar in Berlin that well, Nick Cave didn't own it, but he and lots of other artists that I dig used to hang out at a lot, called the Rizico. And this is where I believe the rumor I heard about him owning a bar came from. I wrote a piece about the Rizico for The Quietest recently, so check that out if you're interested. Blixa Bargeld, who used to bartend there, told me some wild stories. I'm still cranking out Young Southpaw stuff, and people have been very complimentary about the latest Young Southpaw part of an hour story, entitled William... Uro Burroughs. Here's a clip from it. But Uro Burroughs, man, I mean, that's just a cool word, you know? Reminds me of Wooly Bully, you know, that 60s tune, you know, Wooly Bully, etc. You know how the song goes. Uro Burroughs. Uro Burroughs. I mean, I know snakes don't have wool and they're not bulls either. I'm saying the number of syllables, you know? That tune was at the beginning of Splash. I mean, imagine if, you know, instead of Daryl Hannah being a mermaid, Tom Hanks found her as a giant electric eel eating her own tail. I mean, ooh. Constantly getting shocked in the mouth, electricity through the teeth, ouchies. That sounds terrible. I mean, how could you sustain that over an hour and a half long film? I have no idea. Though that's probably what would make it a classic. I mean, you know, the the greats make it look so easy. Though how would this fit into the Jennifer Love Hewitt franchise, you know? 
Splash came out in 1984, you know, before her time. Though, strange they didn't use any Van Halen tunes. Van Halen were even originally known as Mammoth. The OG Wooly Bully. I'm pretty psyched about this one, and there's some more cool stuff coming from these ideas. You can find the whole story up at the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast, which is available at youngsouthpaw.com and all the other podcast places. So let's get to this week's guest. About a month ago, my friend Peter messaged me about this new book by Ryan Hughes called XX, saying that it's brilliant and he thinks I'd really enjoy it. Peter and I are both big Pynchon fans and like the big books, so I thought I'd check it out. And I really dug it. I I couldn't put it down, actually. I finished all 978 pages in eight days. And I know that seems big, but it's not almost a thousand pages of dense text. Being a graphic designer, Ryan does some very cool stuff with the actual text itself. There's a multitude of fonts, and some pages only have a few letters on them. The story is great. I don't normally read too much sci-fi, and I don't know that much about tech. So it was really the story about the scientists picking up an alien signal that carried me along with it, which is what you want, really. It's a great book about the proliferation of ideas. Ryan and I talked for quite a long time, so let's just get to what he has to say, shall we? So we're here today with Ryan Hughes. How you doing, man? I'm okay. I've just had the second jab, so I'm feeling a bit woozy. Um, so I may be a bit uh, under par, but I'll try and do my best here for you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's go for it. <laughs> my first question is, are you a Robert Anton Wilson fan? Well, uh, that's, that's, no one's asked me that before, but I do remember reading um, Illuminati or Illuminatus in the... Um, early 80s probably, um, when the paperbacks came out over here. And I had no prior knowledge of his work whatsoever and found the whole thing quite um, dauntingly complicated. But um, I think that sort of over the intervening years, I've sort of got my head around what it is that he was trying to say and where it was that he was coming from. So, yes. (laughs) Okay. Have you read anything else besides Illuminatus? No, I haven't. Okay. Because, I mean... Very shortly into XX, I, I thought Robert Anton Wilson would have really dug this because he loves, you know, the idea of information and ideas. And he was, mm. his thing was, uh, you know, everyone's tied to their own BS, BS being belief system. Um, and yeah, mm. the whole XX being all about ideas. I was like, oh, <laughs> so that's wondering how much yeah. you knew of his work. Well, man, I obviously need to do a bit more of a deep dive on him. So uh, I will do so. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So when you started work on the book, did you envision it as being as big as it eventually turned out to be? I had no idea. I mean, I knew the area that I wanted to cover. So in terms of its, um, the ideas that I wanted to um, include, I I knew that. Um, There was actually around 350 pages that I took out. So in one of the earlier drafts, it was much, much longer, but um, there was a whole subplot that I decided it wasn't extraneous. It just wasn't absolutely necessary. So that came out um, just because I thought that I'm taxing my readers patience by hitting the 1000 page mark. And I thought that was my upper limit. I didn't want people to be uh, any more um, stretched Either, either in their mind or their pocket. 
than uh, they needed to be. But uh, I mean, several readers have, have pointed out that I probably could have cut another hundred or so pages. But uh, I guess it depends whether you're into the the kind of background sort of philosophical digressions or or not. Mm. I, there's just so much attention to detail. I love like the double sided dust jacket cover. Like, oh yes, that's the American version. The English version doesn't have that. Um, the 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 book is exactly the same. It's it's the the dust jacket is different in the UK. Okay. So that was just something special for the American edition. Oh, lucky us. Yeah. <laughs> and but then like the, all the uh, you know the pulp the Ascension covers on the inside cover. I mean there there was a lot of attention to detail. I imagine you would have had to rein it in at some point. Uh, yeah, you know, the Ascension covers were, I mean, this is the sort of graphic designer in me indulging myself. And um, the, I mean, one of the main thrusts of this book was to find a way that you can do a narrative version of graphic design. Because um, having come from comics, which are sort of essentially a narrative version of illustration, um, it's sort of illustration with the time dimension added. I wanted to know, I wanted to see what graphic design with the time dimension added would look like, and um, the the whole history of Ascension, that fictitious history of a lost cult novel that um, has existed in various paperback formats over the years, was was such fun to do. And in the same way that, say, Philip Dick's work or um, uh, Lovecraft's work, for example, originally came out in the pulps. And then as the years went by, it got reassessed and would come out in more and more fancy editions until nowadays here, the, the Lovecraft um, uh, novels are available as part of the Penguin Classics uh, mm. series, along with um, you know every other classic of English literature. So it's interesting to see how these things become reassessed and, and absorbed into the canon of literature as the years go by. So I wanted to sort of mimic that story with Ascension, which for those people who haven't read the book, is like a fictitious story within the story. So you get this eight-part pulp novelette uh, interspersed throughout the second part of, of the novel. And um, you know the, the happenings in this um, pulp novelette reflect in in some way the the narrative of the larger whole. This just popped into my mind. Do you remember there used to be a sci-fi bookshop near Holloway Road Tube on Holloway Road that closed some years ago? Do you remember that place? Um, there were several up near Holloway, actually, because I remember it was, as a kid, you would have these little sort of weekend circuits where you'd take yourself off and go to Forbidden Planet and uh, Virgin Megastore and you'd get your fix of music and comics and whatever it might be, your sort of cultural fix for the next month. Did you used to live in the in London then? Is that I did. I, li I lived in London for about 10 years from uh, 2003 to 2012. So, Yeah. Well, in Holloway, there were a couple of comic shops, but there was also this um, place called the Fantasy Centre. Do you remember that? Yes, I think that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, and it was a big shop that just dealt in old sci-fi and run by these two old guys, and it had been there forever. And I think I discovered it when I was at school, but it was um, it finally shut in the early 2000s, I think, much to my disappointment. But it was um, 
where I saw old science fiction pulps for the first time. So at the back, they'd have this section where all the most expensive stuff was. And I think that's where the inspiration for those Ascension um, spoof paperbacks and pulps came from, the, the kind of visual history of science fiction. Okay, because you're a big collector of those books. Yes, yes. No, I think, I think if you're, I mean, being, being that I'm primarily, or primarily, one of the things I do is graphic design. I think it's that affinity with um, printed ephemera, you know, the world of um, not, shall we say, high art graphic design, but everyday pop cultural graphic design. I think it sort of informs a lot of what I do. Mm. Yeah, I lived in London for about a decade. It's still my favorite city in the world. And what I loved about XX was that it, it felt like a real a London book to me. I mean, I know there's all these huge <laughs> themes going on beyond that, but I, I think what really drew me in was that feel, that familiar feeling of London. Um, you know, well, you know, Hoxton, and East yeah. specifically. Are you a Londoner originally? Yeah, no, born and bred. So it's okay. very much um, sort of ingrained. No, I think that I definitely drew on my sort of days of going to late night clubs and and um bagel bars and um lock-ins and things like that um in the east end so uh yeah a lot of that local color comes from very specific events um I'm, in fact there was this one uh there's a friend of mine called fred deakin who's half of lemon jelly which is a sort of electronica band but he's also a very good um graphic designer and illustrator and he used to run this night called impotent fury which is the which is where the um you know our, our, one of our characters jack goes to a place called back to mine which is frankly just me describing what impotent fury used to be like there was actually a um a wheel that um fred's assistant would spin and whatever category of music came up on this um it was, it was like a big um about sort of six feet high wheel with different categories around and uh, every 15 to 20 minutes it would it, it, his his assistant would spin this wheel and whatever category came up was what he would play next and so you'd lurch from um james brown into um heavy metal into frank sinatra into um the carpenters into hip-hop or something like this it was just this incredible mix of uh, weird music that he would play and um, it sort of ensured that the people who actually went to this club um, had a sense of humour about it all so some some of the best nights uh, night clubbing nights I've ever had have, have, have been at Impotent Fury so yes um, that story in the book about how um, one of those categories uh, was um, uh, Neil Diamond and <laughs> And how after a few spins, Neil hadn't come up. And then this chant from the dance floor starts getting louder. We want Neil. We want Neil. And then finally, Neil comes up on the Wheel of Fortune and the entire room sort of cheers as, as we get 20 minutes of dancing to Neil Diamond. I mean, only in a nightclub in Hoxton, in some sort of obscure sort of um, night that is run by a, a sort of graphic designer from who's also half of an electronic outfit called Lemon Jelly. Would you get such a thing? But uh, yeah, so I drew on a lot of my own London experiences in order to flesh it out. Oh, that's great. That night doesn't sound like it would work. 
It did. Um, and it had a very loyal audience as well. Um, and we were all very sad when Fred finally put an end to it all. But oh. he ran it for a good four or five years. And uh, it was a highlight for sure. Back to mine. That was like that series of compilations. Like in the yes, uh, it was. It was nothing to do with that. I just, I just borrowed the name. So yeah, there were a series of CD compilations called that, but it's not anything to do with that. There I think was, that, no. In fact, in the book, I think I called it "Back to Yours." Okay, I can't remember. Yeah, so maybe I don't use the exact same phrase. There was lots of stuff like that kept popping up to me that I couldn't tell how on purpose it was. Like Man Machine always reminded me of Kraftwerk whenever I read, read that. Yeah. yeah. And there's a specific one I wanted to ask you about. Let me find the quote. Um, on page 799, <laughs> there's a bit of dialogue where Nixon asks a real God, and then Harry ignored him. And that, in the alcove in the Keystone, a God in an alcove, it's a Bauhaus song. Was that... A purposeful reference. It, it, it was not, and that's a new one on me, so I'll have to go and check that out. i tell you what has been really weird is that some of the reviews of this book have found references and resonances in it that I actually didn't put there. And maybe this is one of the... It, it, I remember talking to Dave Gibbons when he was working on Watchmen, and he said he got to the point where there are all of these weird coincidences that just seem to be occurring around this work it, it seemed to extend beyond the pages into his everyday life and um no so i had no idea that there was a bauhaus song that um wow. well i will now claim that i did and it was a very <laughs> clever reference of course. i'll edit this bit and out and exactly you can what I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i mean there are a lot of things like that that i have buried very deep and i have been amazed at how many of them people have found but yeah that isn't one of them oh wow <laughs> And the other one was a uh, signs and symbols, which was a, a Nabokov short story, and he well, was again, very much about. Oh wow! Yeah, again, I'll have to check it out. <laughs> well, I want to ask you, how much are you like Jack in the book, noticing patterns everywhere? Well, I think that uh, I, hmm, I would say that most writers probably have a bit of themselves in every character that they um, write, and this is my first novel, so it's all very much a kind of learning process for me, and. Um, it has been interesting to see how characters flesh themselves out as you get to know them better. So for the first draft, I had placeholder names for all the characters. I didn't even have their names. And then in about the third or fourth draft, I knew, I, I knew enough about who they were to give them a name. And then I went back in the full knowledge of who they were and... I knew I knew how they sounded in my head, so I could I, I could flesh out their dialogue in the earlier parts a bit better. Um, I think that um, I'm not sort of slightly on the spectrum as Jack is, and I think that that um, attention to detail that um, Jack has, that ability to see the pattern in the chaos and pull out the information from the signal, or see messages in the built environment and think that people are talking to him and then find out that actually people really are trying to talk to him. That um, sort of John Nash degree of um, pareidolia, seeing messages, seeing images in, in a randomised source, um, 
pictures in clouds, for example. Um, you know, I, I have one of a sort of philosophical digression where I, I sort of suggest that that's where conspiracy theories come from. It's you have these suggestive um, factoids from which you build an all-encompassing narrative about who runs the world or what the true secret of why things are the way they are. They are are, but they it, it, they're built out of a group of random data points that you've then constructed a whole story around. Um, so I think that possibly if you're a character like Jack, who is very much dealing with signs, symbols, numbers, that you might have a propensity for that kind of um, thinking. Um, am I like that? Um, font design is a bit like that in that you have to have an incredible attention to detail and you have to hold in your mind sometimes 10, 20 variables when you're designing a font because as you're working through a font, you'll have to make adjustments that have knock-on effects on other characters. And then while you're making that first set of adjustments, you realise that you need to make a second set of adjustments, but you still need to complete that first set of adjustments. So you have two sets of adjustments running parallel in your head. And then, of course, you realise there's a third and a fourth set of adjustments you need to make. And if someone comes and, comes and interrupts what you're doing at this point, uh, it can be chaos. So it's that ability to... Um, hold in your head um, a whole group of variables and then work your way through and finally tie it all up at the end. I think there's there's a bit of that in me uh, when I'm working on font design. But I think that um, of, of all the characters, I'm probably most like Harriet, I would say. Um, that's the, that, that She was my sort of... Um, she was my sort of sensible every woman's voice. Sort of on the one hand, you have Nixon, whose function it is to, to sort of fund the outfit, but not really add much of the intellectual heft to it. And on the other hand, you have Jack, who's the sort of the brains and the the intellectual driving force of it. And then between those poles, you have Harriet, who I think is the kind of humanity there, holding it all together. Mm. Circling back to uh, all the different possibilities, do you play chess? No. Okay. <laughs> As you were describing, I was thinking like, you know, with every chess move, thousands more open up. <laughs> no, I'd imagine it's a similar thing. It, you know, the ability to hold in your mind a string of possible outcomes and to adjust those outcomes as you go along and to be several steps ahead of your characters. I mean, I'd imagine that... Uh, I mean, the first draft of a novel I've decided is um, is where you sort of... I was listening to a podcast with Neil Gaiman, in fact, and he was talking about how it's a bit like having a torch that doesn't reach very far, and so you can't see very far ahead in the narrative. But um, being that I have a background in graphic design... I kind of approached it in a different way from that. In some ways, you can't see very far ahead, but that assumes that you're approaching it in a linear fashion. And I didn't. I, I, I kind of tentpoled it. So I knew where there were sort of three or four key scenes, and I wrote those first. So there was the scene on the far side of the moon towards the end of the novel. There was the first time they actually um, uh, encounter the the aliens in the grid in their office in Hoxton. 
And there was the scene earlier on where um, Dana is on the moon and exploring the um, the lava tubes on the moon. And I wrote those before I really knew who all the characters were. I didn't even know whether the, it might be the same character who was appearing in all of these. As it turned out, there were different characters in in in, in these scenes. And um, the analogy I would give is um, if you're doing life drawing, if you're drawing from the, the model, you don't start up in the left-hand corner and draw an eyeball with all the eyelashes, and then a couple of hours later you find yourself down in the bottom right-hand corner adding the toenail onto the foot, and then you step back and the life drawing is there in its entirety and it's perfect. It just doesn't work like that. It would be... Um, you, you wouldn't have the overall picture. You would you know, the head would be too big, the body would be too small, the legs would be in the wrong place. So you have to keep the whole thing in your mind at once in a flexible fashion so that you get the shape of the whole thing right. So if you're doing a life drawing, you would just do a line for the spine to begin with and a line for the shoulders, and that would sort of suggest a stance, and then you might put another line for where the hips go, and then a couple of lines for where the legs go. And then once, you're, once you've rubbed that out a few times and adjusted it so the stance looks right, then you would add flesh to the bones and get into the detail. And pretty much the last thing you draw is like the eyelashes on the eye. You don't start with the details. And so I approached the novel in a similar way is that I thought, well, what I need to do is I, get, I, get, I need to get the structure down first and then I can start adding the detailing. And I think that I'm not entirely sure that this is how many writers work. And it would be interesting to write in a fashion where you literally just started on page one and ended up on page whatever, and the story took on a life of its own and became something as you wrote it. But I'm not sure that that wouldn't. You've got to have. You've got to have a purpose in mind. You've got to have a destination in mind. You've got, you've got to know, even in the most um, abstract sense, what it is that you're trying to say. Because otherwise you're just dealing, otherwise you're dealing with the details rather than the main um, thrust of your idea. And that surely must be the most important thing. So in XX, it was how, how ideologies and ideas percolate through culture and how we as human beings might just be vehicles for ideas. So it could be that the ultimate unit of consciousness is not the individual human being much as we would like it to be it's these ideas that travel through us and across the world and back again through the medium of individual human beings and we're just um, elements within a bigger machine and we like to think we have a higher degree of autonomy than we actually do you know actually it's the ideas that are in charge so that was the that was the one of the main ideas that um, ran through this. And then to give those ideas the sort of spirit, the zeitgeist of, say, the 20th century, which is XX, or the 19th century, which is the 19th count, or the 21st century, which is Girl 21, to give them shape and form in what I call idea space. In other words, they can um, sort of coalesce in this bit of software that Jack creates called the Oxbow. And within this, they can pinch themselves off from uh, the sort of larger semiotic web into something that is a bit more individualistic so that there is a um uh i i i theorize also in the book that 
one of the essential essences of consciousness, I think, is that it's connected to the wider world, but it's separate from it. So that we have a membrane, if you like, and that membrane is the border of our body. So within our body, we have our mind and our consciousness. But I don't think that would exist unless it was in conversation with a wider world through our senses. So we kind of shape our internal maps of the world and of who we are because we interact with an external world. And I, I think there, there, there might even have been, I mean, it sounds hideous, there might even have been experiments for real in the past where they kept children away from any kind of cultural input whatsoever just to see what they would, whether they would develop language or um, come up with um, an alphabet or something. I think the theory was is that they would te- talk in the language of Adam. In other words, the theoretical biblical language that um, Adam spoke before language itself as we know it had been subsequently created i mean it sounds like an absolutely hideous experiment to try on a real person but unless i'm misremembering i think someone actually did try this Hmm. so i think that who we are is very much a two-way conversation with the environment that we find ourselves in um so the the d-men um the digital mimetic entities in order for them to find themselves in order for them to have an identity. They had to be, um, as Jack describes it in the book, they have to have somewhere to wash up and an oxbow, an oxbow lake in a river is is um, where, where a river has become so twisty and full of bends that the bends intersect with each other. And you get this little pinch of um, a river in which things wash up. So they, you know, things can become becalmed in this oxbow. And so the idea was is that it, he creates this little piece of software within which these characters, the demon, can have some kind of sense of self and autonomy. And that's when they start popping into um, existence for the first time. Hmm. I think one of my favorite bits of the book was when I realized the analog between the alien with the forebrain and the high brain and how that oh, yeah. relates to us. I was like, oh, that, that's very good. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's something we probably could deal with, actually. Probably we could do do with, I should say. Yeah, the ability to not be hijacked by ideas that might, in the same way that a virus would, in the same way that COVID would, sort of hijack us for its own reproductive ends. I think that, I think that's a really good. I mean, that's the Dawkins analogy of the meme as opposed to the gene is a self-replicating idea that um, travels throughout a culture. Um, and does not need to be true or good in order to reproduce. It just has to be infectious. So there are certain ideas that travel far and become very powerful, not because they have any, they confer any benefit on the people that believe in them, but just because they have, the way that they are put together is very infectious. I mean, and I talk about this, like the idea of faith in, in, you know, in a religious faith, but also you might have, a similar kind of conviction in your political beliefs or your cultural beliefs. And the uh, the idea of faith, almost by definition, is belief without evidence. And if you can be a, if you can construct a meme, if you can construct an idea that can reproduce without evidence, that is that is an absolute masterstroke if you want to infect a population 
with an idea because it, there are no checks and balances on, on the propagation of that idea whatsoever. If you don't have to check your idea against reality, um, if it's an article of faith that this idea is true, then its reproductive success can skyrocket in a kind of Orwellian way where um, you're not allowed to doubt the party or you're born into, say, a religious um, worldview where from an early age you're indoctrinated to the point where you find it very hard to uh, look at these ideas with any degree of um, uh, dispassionate um, analysis. Uh, these are these are the kind of ideas that that um, can can sort of raise armies and march across continents. And in in the book, at one point, I say that it's not actually um, countries or individuals that went to war. It was the ideas that went to war, and we were just their proxies. And I think that very much is the case. Um, there is a sort of higher level, if you like, the kind of um, you know, above the kind of cult above the individual consciousness, there is a kind of cultural consciousness. And so each each society, if you like, if you if you can take a group of people who have some degree of separation in the same way that an individual might have a degree of separation because of the borders of their body. So there's an interior and an exterior to their sense of self. So a culture might have a similar um uh sort of semi-permeable border. So you might get a group of people who are bound together by, by, by their language or by their geographical position. So you might have the English um, in England speaking English, and they will have different cultural motifs and ideas and things that they take for granted and think are universal. Um, but across the other side of the world, there'll be another culture that behaves in a completely different way and has a completely different language that think exactly the same thing. And it's that degree of separation that allows those different cultures to exist in, in, independent of each other. But of course, because the world is so connected these days, these cultures are now colliding with each other. And it's a bit like as individuals, individual people, sort of meeting people who for the first time speak a different language. Apparently, isolated tribes just could not get their head round the idea that there was, in the next valley, another tribe that spoke a different language. They assumed that everyone spoke their language universally everywhere. They didn't have the, the broader perspective that made them realise how parochial and local their set of ideas or their um, the symbolic manner in which they communicate uh, you know, was just a local invention in the same way that people's religions they think are universal and, and and true always and everywhere and they're not they're just inventions of a local tribe in a local geographic area and i think a lot of the conflicts we see in the modern world are these very strongly held ideologies coming into contact and conflict with each other um i mean the obvious example of this is jihadism or um, you know, more broadly, say, um, you know, Chinese communism versus um, sort of, quote-unquote, sort of Western free market capitalism. And these, these, these two different, very different ways of thinking about the world and organising your life cannot coexist independently of each other um, 
into the future. They are going to have to pick each other apart and come to some kind of agreement um, because they're mutually incompatible. Uh, and, and so you, you can imagine this sort of higher level of, of um, it's almost like imagine a culture that occupies a local space and that local space might now even be a kind of um, group of people that are bound together on the internet, not by geographical proximity, but by the fact that they're all interested in the same idea. So you'll get a tribe of people who are all interested in, I don't know, the idea that the earth is flat or something like that. So they will band together and they will have their own set of internal beliefs that are unique to them. And they will come into conflict with other groups that have different ideas. So they're very much like individuals. These sets of cultural beliefs are um, individuated um, and I think have a very close analogy to the way that the human brain works. So those are the D-men. Those are our sort of digital mimetic characters that I have in uh, XX. XX, the titular character, is the spirit of the 20th century. So, for example, he is, I mean, the 20th century is, um, I mean, there are so many threads to the 20th century, and the actual 20th century is an arbitrary um, division. You know, the the idea that um, there is a, a sort of cohesive set of ideas that happen to have happened between 1900 and the year 2000, those dates are just arbitrary. And there's no reason why, say, the 60s might inherently have a character or the 70s might have a character or the 50s might have a character. I don't think they do. I think they have several characters that sort of bleed into each other and don't fit within those neat decades. But for the purposes of the novel, it just seemed a nice idea to to try and think of what the spirit of the 20th century or 19th century might be. Mm. So the spirit of the 20th century is very much the spirit of uh, modernism, which I define as um, not just modernism in terms of art movements like the Bauhaus, Dada, you know, which is like a sort of proto-punk sort of movement, really. Uh, and sort of modernism, but modernism also in sort of politics. So you get the the grand narratives of rearranging the world and how we live in more rational manners. And if there's one thing that modernism tries to do, it's rearrange things in a rational fashion. So in architecture, sort of modernist architecture primarily is functional and doesn't like, it's suspicious of decoration. Decoration is non-functional and therefore is suspect. Whereas, say, the previous um, decade, you know, the decade that the 19th count was from, uh, was you know, the Victorian age, was very much into decoration. Decoration was how you flagged up your, uh, your position in society because decoration took a lot of man hours to put in and displayed your wealth and your richness and all the rest of it. Whereas the story of modernism in the 20th century is, is one of stripping away all of that privilege and all of that, um, uh, those different levels of, um, of life and making everyone equal in, um, you know, it's the story of socialism and communism and, you know, the, the, uh, the flattening out of, of um, differences in society for better or worse, you know, um, economically, culturally, and approaching um, problems of architecture, of, of arranging 
um, what people do in life, um, what their interests are, in a what they thought was a rational and logical way. Um, so that's very much the essence of um, the character of XX, is that, um, uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's a thread that's at the heart of fascism, sort of the, 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 re, the rearrangement of society along certain um, ideological uh, lines, and everything is subservient to that. And exactly the same idea, but on the other end of the, of the political spectrum with communism or, or the far left ends of socialism. Whereas in the middle, you get a sort of um, a more sort of individuated, individualist sort of approach where people's individual autonomy is held as more um, desirable and valuable. You know, the pursuit of your individual happiness, you know, the... Um, the idea that we have personal responsibility and autonomy and it's up to us to find meaning in our lives rather than that meaning to be um, uh, given to us by an, by an external ideology, whether that be the party or, or your, your race, you know, your, um, your nationality. You know, the, the value of you as an individual is, is, is drawn from something that comes outside of that, your tribe. Basically, mm -hmm. I see I, I see a lot of return to the value of people, you know, people's value as human beings being part of their tribe rather than their in, rather than their individual um, attributes, um, which I think can only take us to a very very dark place. And I see a lot of that on the left and the right in in politics and culture at the moment. I sort of move away from individual autonomy towards this sort of suppression of our individuality within a sort of a larger identity which might be drawn from our immutable characteristics or our political affiliation or our geographical location or our ideological inclination, all of these things. Um, so, again, I think I think these, these two um, different approaches to... Um, sort of cultural motif. So what differentiates the 19th count um, and XX uh, in my novel? And I play them off against each other. You know, there's a passage where they're arguing and um, uh, XX is describing what the perfect world will be with everyone marching in lockstep and the machine, the man machine, where we are all cogs within this beautiful oiled um, well-run machine of, of um, culture uh, that's sort of running for the betterment of, betterment of all. And of course, the 19th Count, being an aristocratic dandy, um, isn't falling for this whatsoever and is sort of cynically saying, it sounds like there's going to be uniforms. I don't look good in a uniform. <laughs> So they kind of uh, they kind of jokingly argue and spar with each other. These two characters, although although they have a lot in common, and you get the impression in the novel that they actually, despite their differences, um, share more than they uh, they disagree. And also, Girl Twenty One, who's the essence of the you know our, our current twenty first century, um, sort of has the final say in this. But um, under under those under those sort of typographic um experimentation where you know the X XX of the 21st century is talking in a kind of punk dada um display of clashing type and you know that I've sort of borrowed from people like Marinetti or again yeah, there's the a lot of futurists 
yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, and then later on through the Bauhaus and sort of the more stripped down modernism of the Bauhaus. Um, whereas the 19th Count is full of all of these sort of mismatched um, uh, wood Victorian wood type where it, there's lots of character but no overall um, design aesthetic going on there. So um, I'm not... I'm, I'm, I, I, I tried to write it in such a way that I, I wasn't taking sides and um, I could sort of speak in each of these voices without disbelieving in the counterfactual aspects that the other character was throwing into the mix. I very much enjoyed Girl 21's makeup of being you know, a composite of <laughs> dozens, if not hundreds of different selfies people had taken and posted. That was a really nice touch. Yeah, I think that would that that would look really good, you know, in a in a film adaptation or a TV adaptation. Have you thought about how you would do one? I mean, this is very type is a big <laughs> uh, yeah, part of the book. It, um, yeah, uh, there, there 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 are moves afoot in that department, and I won't say any more. But um, yeah, it's 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 going to be an interesting. Um, projects to see if it can be extended into other media but yeah we'll see we'll see what happens um it is very much a it does very much use the sort of history of the book so it's kind of it's a book that's aware that it, that it's a book which is again the sort of graphic design trope um i think graphic designers are sort of aware of the surface of things in a way that just sort of lends, um, you you have an eye for the, as a graphic designer, when you look at a book cover or a poster or whatever, you're not just reading the message and getting the information uh, that is being communicated. You're aware of the manner in which it is being done. You're aware of the fonts and the colors and the, the surface of the uh, the piece of graphic design as well. And I think that Again, that's very much um, one of the threads of modernism is is a awareness of the uh, you know modernism in painting. If you think of something like cubism or um, Russian supremacism or any other of those sort of early modern movements in the arts, what they were doing was foregrounding the surface of the painting as a painting. It was a kind of honesty to form. It was saying that this is actually paint on a canvas. It's a picture of something. It might be a pictorial representation. It might be a window onto a scene, but it's also an object in and of itself. And I think that that's what I've tried to do with XX. It's a description and a story, but it's also an a. It's also made of paper and board, and it's bound with glue, and it occupies a volume of three dimensional space. So it's a. Um, it's a vessel and it's what the vessel contains. So the vessel is the book and the physical attributes of the book and what it contains is the cultural, uh, metaphysical, informational, language-based part of it, which, again, by analogy, I sort of draw a kind of comparison between consciousness and the... Um, the kind of substrate with which consciousness runs on. And that happens to be, for us, that happens to be biological. But um, in the novel, 
uh, it ends up by being pretty much anything that can contain information. So as as I'm probably giving away a few too many spoilers here, so I'll try and sort of explain this without ruining the story. But um, the, the, the grid um, is just another way of encoding information. And I, I think that as soon as you've got a way of encoding information, then consciousness can almost jump into it. And um, I think this is happening and will happen, is that consciousness itself will become substrate independent and whatever consciousness will be in the, in the future, um, I think it will be a vastly different and more extended and um, reimagined thing than we can possibly imagine as individual human beings that just happen to be in meat machines mm. that our biological entities um, can ever imagine. Very much tied to how we feel and our physical sensations and whatnot. Well, yeah, I think that I think that's the other interesting part of it is that we very much we we, we are very much dragging with us um, billions of years of evolution. So all of our drives are ones that we share with the lower animals, you know, to the sex drive, you know, we have, we have to eat, we have to, you know, we, we, we have to get born and live and die, we have to sleep. All of these are legacies of our biological heritage and our evolution. And I think that ultimately we will leave all these behind. So at the moment we're very much sort of, um, you know, we're, we're a kind of abstracted consciousness that's still riding on top of a billion years of brute biological evolution. And the fingerprints of that evolution are all over us. And I think we like to think we're above our animal nature, but we're not. <laughs> you know, we still compete for um, mating opportunities, just like apes do. You know, so if you, if you look at um, a nature program about how animals that are quite different from us behave, you can, you know, it, it's like it's like high school. Some of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wanted to talk to you about punk rock. Oh yeah, please do. You use the punk rock aesthetic, various points in the book. You anarchy in the UK is like comes at a you know, plot point. Yeah. Uh, what are your feelings about punk? What does it mean to you? Well, I think I was a bit too young to really, I think punk was a, um, it was a reaction against something else. And, and I was a bit too young to know what the something else was because my earliest collision with music was sort of the earliest punk. So, you know, I was, I don't know, 13 or 14 or whatever, listening to the Stranglers or, um, you know the early Sex Pistols or whatever. So I think that I think that its full impact was lost on me. But having said that, I think that the essence of that punk aesthetic is something that happens again and again and again. So again, I would say that say you know Italian futurism is very much in the arts what punk was in music in the UK in, in the seventies. It's that, it's that sort of throwing out of the past. Um, and the, the sense that everything is new and what's more that you can do it right now. There are no barriers for entry. 
that these kind of rules that everyone tells you that you should abide by and you've got to study meticulously in order to be able to do this thing, whatever it may be, um, have vanished overnight. And therefore, you can, you can express yourself. And of course, that expression will be crude and um, in some ways naive and thoughtless. But at the same time, it has this kind of energizing um, effect. And I think that that's what I felt. It was it was this, everyone was doing their own punk fanzine. Everyone was photocopying their own mini comic. Everyone was just drawing stuff um, just because they could. And the technology was cheap and you could photocopy a fanzine or a comic and staple it together. And it would take you a couple of days to do. And then you could just hand a copy to all your friends. And it was that immediacy that um, was so seductive. You didn't have to deal with vast corporations who were gatekeepers to culture who decided what you could or could not do. Um, it, it, it had been democratised. Expression had been democratised. And I think that that's also what happened when the internet came along, is you know, expression had been democratised. And I think, for better or worse, we're, we're living in that, in that sort of um, uh, post removal of gatekeeper world where i mean the catholic church used to balk at unlicensed printing presses because they thought that people might print books that might contradict scripture and we couldn't have this happen you know who knows what chaos it would inflict on the minds of those poor peasants if they thought thoughts that might be bad for them we have got to be the gatekeepers of the right and the tr and the true and of course, they lost that um, battle. And I think that what we've seen is that slow erosion of um, old media in the face of new media again and again and again. And I think that the the upside of the, uh, of the low barrier to entry in the um, internet, um, you know, the cultural milieu of the internet, is that anyone can do a YouTube video. You know, we're doing one now. And anyone can have a voice and find an audience. Um, and that's the upside of it. It's also the downside of it. Mm. All of those people with bizarre ideas who, and sometimes dangerous ideas, ideas can be dangerous, also have a platform. And um, I think what we as, we as a species have got to develop, in the same way that we're developing an immunity to COVID, we have got to develop an immunity to bad ideas. And what we are doing at the moment with everything from QAnon conspiracy theories to um, their equivalent on the far left is being seduced by ideas that are propagating through us and we have got to not be so gullible, which is not to say, which is not to say that we should be cynical of everything, because I think that's also a um, unproductive direction to go in. Hmm. But we have got to be flexible in our thinking, not take things on faith. There's that word again. We can't take things on faith. We've got to be a whole lot less tribal. We've got to weigh ideas up for their value in and of themselves and not just 
believe whatever others in in our self-perceived group believe. We've got to exercise our individual autonomy to be flexible, savvy thinkers in the same way that people who were first reading books that were being put out on local printing press down the road in Fleet Street might have been. Um, we've just we've just got to know how to do the, the, the phrase I used in uh, an earlier book, which in some ways is is a bit of a sort of dry run for XX, was a book I did called um, uh, Culture, Ideas Can Be Dangerous, which was more like an extended essay rather than a novel. And sort of misquoting Marshall McLuhan in that, um, I said, we've got to be streetwise in the global village. And I think that that... That is how we build up sort of mimetic um, defences, if you like. So we can't get hijacked by bad ideas. Mm. And there's there's the t- there's there's a T-shirt in um, in XX uh, where one of the few things that X, uh, that XX and the Nineteenth Count actually agree on is uh, how do you kill a bad idea? You have a better one. And Jack says. Can I have that on a T-shirt? And then towards the end of the novel, he prints the T-shirts up. <laughs> the three of them, yeah. Of course, what I've actually done is I've printed those T-shirts up and there's a link in my bio on Instagram where you can go and Excellent. Buy, idea, buy, buy a T-shirt with that on. But that kind of sums up one of the kind of philosophical messages of the novel is, you know, you, you, you don't kill bad ideas by suppression. What you do is you beat them with better ideas. So it's that... Um, you've just got to have the better argument. I think that's the that, that's the way that we get past these kind of entrenched, um, detrimental belief systems that people hold. There seems to be something seductive about the idea itself that is held by a tribe by the very fact that it's held by a group of people. Yes. That uh, is dangerous. No, I think it's a sense of belonging, and I yeah. think that, uh, and I would say that when you're young and you still are looking for um, a sort of sense of belonging and a sense of identity, and you haven't really worked out who it is that you are, I think you kind of buy into a kind of off-the-shelf identity more. So, for example, if you find a band that you like, you'll probably start dressing a bit like the band, and you'll hang out with other people who also like that band. And then a bit later on, you'll realise, well, I kind of like that song, but then they really went off the rails. The third album was awful. And so you become a bit more nuanced in your your tribal affiliations, if you like. It's not an all or nothing thing. And I think that what that process is, what you are doing there, is you're asserting your individuality and you're realising that you yourself are a more nuanced person than can be summed up by your um, adherence to liking just one specific band or one specific ideological way of thinking or religion or political um, affiliation or whatever. I would hope that most, I mean, I would hope that most people, even with their favourite pundits that they might watch on YouTube or anything would would sort of say well i'm kind of with them 75 percent of the way but their ideas on x 
whoa, where does that come from? That, I think, is a more healthy way of approaching this kind of thing than sort of buying into the fact that everything everything that this person says is 100% correct and everything this other person says who's outside of my tribe is 100% incorrect. I mean, that's that, it's very, very unlikely just from a statistical <laughs> point of view that that is actually really going to be the case. And, and the more you can tease apart um, where you agree and disagree with certain people's ideas, the better you will be informed. Um, I think. I think it's always a. It, 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 it is analogous to that kind of coming of age that we all go through, where we pin our colours to the mast. We, you know, our group over here. We like punk rock. We hate disco. And then ten years later, you think to yourself, God. I really like disco. <laughs> I can't admit that, though. That's kind of against my principles. And um, there was I, was, I was, I was joking with um, uh, a friend of mine um, about these kind of um, levels that you, the, 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 these kind of um, epiphanies that you might go through in life. And one of them I sort of dubbed getting disco. And it was this sort of this idea that all of a sudden one day you realize that the reason that you were not liking disco was you know, you, you, you know, if you grew up on the Smiths and you hated disco because the lyrics were meaningless, they were all about getting up and then getting down again. I mean, what is that all about? It's it's a bit like sort of arguing that you can't dance to bark or something like that. It's, you know, you're using the wrong criteria. Yeah. And as soon as, as soon as you realize what it is that disco is trying to do, you're like, right, I'm there. I get it. You know, <laughs> and what it is, you've adjusted your criteria with which you search for value in the world. And I think there are too many people who have a very set criteria with which they search for value in the world and things that fall inside or outside of those criteria are very easy to dismiss. And you're not allowing things to be what they are and seeing the value inherent in them for what they are, which is why I call this getting disco. Um, you've got to shift your viewpoint or expand your viewpoint in order to see things from multiple angles and entertain different ways of looking at things that might be equally valid. I remember a friend of mine when we were in our early 20s said to me, um, a sign that you know you've grown up is that you accept what you like. You don't like, you don't judge that, you know, oh, I can't say I like this song because it isn't cool. <laughs> yeah, well, I think this was, this was the essence of Impotent Fury, that club night I was talking about, is that it was such an eclectic mix that um, you didn't like all of it, but the atmosphere in that club was amazing. You know, just the sheer joy that would emanate from that dance floor. And I've, I've been to nightclubs where you feel like, or seen bands where you feel like there's going to be a fight. You know, someone's going to get bottled. Mm -hmm. There's a really unpleasant atmosphere. I mean, I remember in the early days of hip hop, sort of going to, um, there, there was a venue just around, around the corner from where my art studio happened to be. And we would go there and see, you know, the first appearance of Run DMC, for example, in the UK. And I love Run, Run DMC, but the atmosphere at some of these places was, whoa, you know, it was, you could cut it with a knife. And 
Impotent Fury was the it, it, it was an older audience. It was a bunch of sort of you know approaching middle aged people who had probably uh, got to leave early to uh, <laughs> you know so that the babysitter wasn't up too late. So yeah, it was it was it was a different audience, but uh, yeah. Anyway, tell me about the Celestial Mechanic album. Um, well, that was that was interesting in that um, the review pre- preceded the album. So the idea in the novel is that the again these are sort of spoilers. So I apologise if I'm ruining bits of the book. I'll you know, anyway. There 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 is a signal of extraterrestrial origin, which has been leaked onto the internet and people being the creative individuals that they are decide that they're going to make art or music out of this. And so I wrote this fictitious review in my best spoof sort of enemy pretentious journalist style. I use the phrase a sonic cathedral of sound, which is a sort of running gag uh, for these kind of pretentious um, music reviews of that period for this album that someone had made and a band called Celestial Mechanic had made from the signal. And then um, a friend of mine, uh, DJ Food, and my sister, um, Saren, who's a pianist, produced this album from the review. And um, we put a QR code in the book so that when you get to that page and you see the review of the album, you can actually listen to this album but uh maybe the first time that the review preceded the actual album (laughs) are you familiar with l records no label from the 80s no Uh, lovely stuff mike alway was the uh he ran the label and he was very much about having a certain english aesthetic um and he would sort of create the bands he had like a team of songwriters and he would just say oh this is a good name for a band here you you and you go into the studio and make this record with these song titles yeah yeah. but there's one story where um (laughs) the records were sent out to some magazine to be reviewed but they didn't get the actual music they only got the covers and the you know the review had to be in the next day so he was talking on the phone he said well just review the records based on the artwork as to what you think they sound like (laughs) I thought that was brilliant. Well, I would say that that, I I can remember as a graphic designer looking at album covers in record shops and not having enough money to buy the albums. But in my imagination, conjuring up what they sounded like. I'm sure this is a very common experience. Um, Less so now, because obviously you can just go on the internet and find out what these things look like for free. But when you had a limited, when you had limited funds as a kid, you had to weigh up the pros and cons of buying that vinyl album uh, very carefully. And so in my mind, there are whole albums, album after album, where I vividly remember the sleeve because it was, say, in the window of a of WH Smith, which is a sort of high street um, chain here. And I've never heard the album. Um, and I'm sure some of them have completely different from how I imagine them to be. Mm. But yeah, it's that, it's that sort of visual. And again, this is sort of graphic designers love this. It's the way that a piece of graphic design can conjure up so much more. It can conjure up a set of ideas. It can conjure up sounds, feelings, emotions. Um, I mean, everyone knows this. I mean, 
it's not, it, 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 you know, it's, it's not that there's a language that graphic designers speak that is deeply mysterious. I mean, everyone wears clothes that signal which which tribe they belong to or don't belong to. So we all have, we all use, a, we all sort of use a visual language in order to communicate. And we know very well what signals we're giving off. So people know how to talk to each other non-verbally, which is just what sort of graphic design is a more codified version of. Um, and so what, I think one of the things I like about it is that um, it's quite egalitarian. You don't have to have studied semiotics for five years in order to understand that when someone wears a certain outfit, they're telegraphing something. You know, it's something that because we're all embedded in the same culture, we get these uh, references um, very easily. Uh, so there's, there, there, are, there are all these um, languages that we talk, if you like, that um, are not just words on a page. They're not just sounds that come out of people's mouths. There's, you know, there's body language. All of these very, very subtle. I mean, if, if, if you've ever seen someone having an argument on the phone, they will still just gesticulate. They will still be really expressive facially, even though the person on the other end cannot see any of this information. We are so used to communicating across so many different uh, media, so many on so many different levels, that we do it even when the other person can't see that we're doing it. It's just ingrained in us. And I think that, again, this is what I was trying to do with XX, is kind of broaden the expressive range of the novel so that your average novel is just a set of letters that can be poured into any vessel. You know, you could reformat it into a Kindle um, file or a PDF or a book and it would remain the same story. In other words, it's, it's, it's sort of vessel agnostic, if you like. Your, your average novel or your average piece of writing of any variety is vessel agnostic, whereas I don't think that um, they should be. I think, you know, the weight and heft of the book and the colour of the cover and the smell of the paper are the equivalent of, the, of us gesticulating while we're having an argument. They're this extended sort of semiotic... Um, uh, stage upon which we can set out this performance, if you like. And if we're not using everything we can and bringing everything we can to bear for the sake of the work of art, for the sake of the novel in this case, we're kind of missing a trick or two. So it's just, you know, it's, it's what graphic designers do, you know, the, you know, that record sleeve for your favourite album I'm sure as a sort of 14, 15 year old was as important as the music within it. It was part and parcel of that experience. Um, you know, and again, the sort of smell of, the, of, of, the, of that new, um, I can remember that sort of newly varnished cardboard smell that an album would have. That was part of it. It's, was, you know, the, all, all of these details are, intimate parts of these experiences. That's why I loved vinyl. So, I mean, I grew up with it, but it, you had a 12 inch picture to look at and pour over, you know, if it was. Yeah. Cool. 
Yeah. And like, I mean, people say don't judge a book by its cover. I don't understand because I've bought so many books and albums just because something looks so cool. It's like, I got to hear this. I got to read this, you know? Yeah, and I think that's why um, I think there should be a direct connection between the artist and and the cover. And I think that you see this because I've worked in music, design for music and design for publishing. I can see how very different they are. So what happens in music is that there's a, there's a new album by a band. That band will generally contact you and you'll have a meeting with the band and they'll tell you that they're you know, what their music is about. And you will try and articulate that and you'll have meetings with the band where you'll show them some ideas and um, you'll have a discussion and then um, arrive at some finished design. That will then be given to the marketing department at the label who will then decide which magazines they're going to book ad space in or whatever, or which websites they're going to, put ads on, whatever it might be. This is how it used to be <laughs> 10 years ago. In publishing, it's the other way around. You do not talk to the author. You talk to the marketing department in the publishing house. And the marketing department will tell you who the audience are. You know, the people who are going to buy this book also bought this book, this book, and this book. And so we need it to look like this book, this book, and this book, so that the punter will know, ah, oh, okay, well, it's another one of these kinds of products. So it's a, it's a bit like it's a bit like selling own brand toothpaste. You know, if you have a kind of Tesco own brand toothpaste, you can't be too innovative because people won't know that it's toothpaste. So it has to look a bit like the three or four leading brands of toothpaste without impinging on the copyright so you get sued of any of those brands. It has to look like a generic version. So you, you get this kind of you get this kind of chase to be more and more generically what people think that that kind of book is like. So for, I'll give you an example. You get, a, you get something like a sensation, like the Da Vinci Code, and then every book that has the remotest connection to um, sort of biblical prophecy and um, conspiratorial puzzles that go back thousands of years will have exactly the same font, exactly the same... Um, sort of photoshopped colonnade or whatever it was on the front cover because marketing departments are treating graphic design not as an extension of the product itself, not, not as an extension of the art project that is the book, but as a market, as a positioning statement in a bookshop. Mm. And this is the death of graphic design. Yeah. <laughs> it just chases down the rabbit hole to mediocrity and similarity. Whereas I, you would never ever, I can remember once a author phoned me up because she'd found out that I was designing her book and she phoned me up to have a chat about what her book was about, uh, which is exactly what would happen if you were working with a band. And, I, and the next time I spoke to the publisher, I said, oh, so-and-so phoned me up. And there was this dead silence. And I could, I could sense that they were really worried where this might lead, that we might bypass their sort of marketing <laughs> juggernaut and they might actually get a book cover that had nothing to do with what marketing <laughs> were expecting. So um, I would, I would, I mean, I mean, and again, if you look at the history of um, 
mu music design. There are so many iconic albums that are intimately connected to the period in which they came out. And you talk, you were talking about punk rock. So let's talk about Jamie Reed's um, Sex Pistols design. They are iconically connected to those albums, as are, say, the Beatles' White Album or um, Dark Side of the Moon or whatever. You would not repackage those in whatever was the latest trend that people thought might look good on a shelf in a, in FOP or something like that. Uh, but there are very few book covers that you can say the same thing about. Mm. Maybe, maybe David Pelham's um, cover for Clockwork Orange, for example, oh, yeah. or one of the early covers for The Great Gatsby or something like that. But they're few and far between, and they do not... People repackage books again and again and again because those books are marketing tools. They're not extensions of the author's vision, and they should be. And I think that I would encourage authors as just imagine that you are in a band. If you were the Beatles or if you were David Bowie, you would not allow the marketing department at EMI or whatever, to design your sleeve for you and have no input whatsoever, just be shown something at the end and said, well, yeah, this is what we came up with. You would, you would be choosing the designer, you would be choosing the photographer, you would be choosing the illustrator. These would not be done in-house by the publishing company. They would be done by the people, you know, they would be done by Peter Blake or whoever it was that you decided was going to do your Sergeant Peppers. And I would like authors to have that degree of authorial control over their book covers. And I am sure, <laughs> I'm sure that there are publishers who would hate this because it would be a big mess and they would get loads of covers that they would absolutely loathe and would consider to be utterly uncommercial. But then you could argue the same case for music related design and I don't think it holds true I think that if you look at the last 40-50 years of book cover design and record sleeve design record sleeve design generally with a few exceptions is so much more interesting what are some of so your much... favorite sleeves oh um Blue Monday, Peter Savile's Blue Monday sleeve. Again, you would not get that past a marketing department in a yeah. publisher. It doesn't say Blue Monday on it. It has a colour-coded, um, those boxes down the side. Um, but the idea that it's based on a floppy disk, and floppy disks were what the early electronic music was recorded on, it's perfect in terms of its semiotics, of what it communicates to a sophisticated audience of record of music buyers. It says exactly what it needs to say to be a perfect match for the music inside. It's so much part and parcel of that record that you could not repackage that in anything else and for it not to be diminished. Mm. But it breaks every rule of marketing. Yeah. And that's what you should do. You know, you should break, you should, rules are there to be carefully and creatively broken with knowledge of exactly what you are doing and why. 
So you don't break those rules arbitrarily, but you do it with a graphic designer's and a creative person's eye to the difference between a hidebound rule that is there just because it's an unquestioned rule and something that actually makes sense. It's the punk aesthetic all over again. It's it's everything's up for grabs, but some things are the way that they are because they just happen to really work better that way. And other, and other things are the way that they are through how hidebound convention. And we have to know one from the other. Um, and sometimes in that process, we throw the baby out with the bathwater, but that's, you know, the arrogance of youth um, again and again and again. So, yeah. So, I mean, Peter Savile again was one of those and and he had the benefit of working with Factory Records, who supported him in this respect. And I think that a lot of these um, iconic um, pairings of designer and musician or designer and writer come through the... Um, come about because you have businessmen, owners of record sleeves or, or publishing companies who really appreciate what graphic design can actually do and be, and they want something special. And I have this, I have this argument in comics quite a lot where there's this, on the one hand, a kind of pull towards commercialism. So everyone wants their comic to look a bit like a Marvel comic. And on the other hand, a sort of pull towards innovation and of sort of charting new or newish sort of design territory. And that's where I'd rather be. And it, it's a, it's a very, very familiar tension that pulls you in both ways at once that you have to sort of balance. But if you, you know, if you think about people like Vaughan Oliver and his work for 4AD, um, that would not have not have happened without Ivo Watts of 4AD's vision and belief in what uh, Vaughan Oliver was doing. That's what you need. You need um, the people who are in charge of the publishing house or the record label with a vision who, who enable creative people to not be compromised by um, crass commercial concerns. And in the process, um blue monday in that sleeve for many many years was the best selling 12 inch record of all time so to say that these innovations are not commercial is just not true and there were, there was another interesting um case of this where um oh, I don't know we're talking about 10 years ago now i was designing uh, covers for Iron Man for, for Marvel. And what comics quite often do is they do a split run so that you might have two or three different covers for the same comic. So it's a bit like having two or three different sleeves for the same record. And so you you have a head-to-head -head, um, test of which sleeve shifts the most units. It's a complete, pure commercial gauge of which kind of cover will sell you more product. And this Iron Man run, we, I was working with Matt Fraction, who got me in to design these, who, who, was, who had been unhappy with the, the rather generic covers that 
Marvel had been doing for him in-house. And so I did six in all covers for him for a, for a story called Stark Disassembled. And because Marvel were slightly uneasy about these covers, um, we they did them as a split run. And the other half of the run were very much mainstream Marvel covers. And I remember saying to the editor, um, well, how are they doing? And he said, in all the all the comic shops near Marvel's HQ in New York, they'd sold out of my covers, and all that was left on the shelf were the bog standard Marvel covers. So again, it's not It's from a, if you if you if you want to put your purely commercial head on, let graphic designers do this weird shit, and you will shift units <laughs> most of the time. Most of the time, it's not guaranteed. Sometimes we are given enough rope to hang ourselves and yeah, you know, we, we, we can fuck up, but, um, but, but, but what you need is you need those kind of visionaries in the corporate world who will let people be the best that they can, they can be to push them to innovate more, to, to fight through the cliches, to rethink things from the ground up, to to innovate and um, create really good work. And when you do find clients who are like that, who are supportive and will give you, and a supportive client is not just one who allows you to do exactly what you want. You what you want you want pushback. You want to have to fight for what it is that you believe in, but the process of fighting, or not fighting, but discussing, say, what it is that you've done is also a useful process because it sharpens your own thinking as well. And so if you have a client who's a good foil for that, you get a much superior product than either someone who hamstrings you at every opportunity for commercial concerns or who just allows you to do everything you want to do because they think you're great. You know, between those two poles is someone who gets what it is that you're trying to do, but is also um, also an intelligent foil for it and makes you try even harder and makes you justify every last full stop and makes you think more clearly about what it is that you are doing and why. That, that, you know, those, those, those are the relationships that every creative individual wants in their lives. And I've had a few. Um, and they've they've been fantastic, and they're generally with individuals rather than companies. So they might leave one company and go and work somewhere else, and you know they'll they'll take their way of thinking with them. Um, but they, you know when you do find when you do have clients like that, they're 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 absolute gold, and you know the best work that I've ever done has been because. I've had people fighting my corner within the company and, you know, they are the heroes of the best creative, innovative work that I've ever done. It wouldn't have happened if they hadn't have believed in what it was that I had been trying to do. Awesome. This would probably be a good place to stop, but um, do you have anything you want to add? What's coming up next? Um, I have another novel that's finished. Um, 
<laughs> it has been finished for about a year, actually. These wow. are, what you've got to remember is that sort of the there's a big gap between the doing of the thing and when the thing actually comes out, and people assume that um, yeah, people assume that the turnaround um, speed is much faster than it actually is. So um, yes, in August uh, there will be a new novel from wow. me. Um, it's not been announced yet. Um, it's shorter. <laughs> um, in a lot of ways, it's more straightforward. Um, it's, it's, it's got its philosophical digressions and explorations of various different ideas. Um, it's, it's, a lot of it is based in London again, so you might get a kick out of that. Nice. Um, it's it's to do with new technology and old technology, and it's to do with what a city is as an incubator of ideas and how that, in a science fictional way, might actually work. So it's it's the it's the sort of city as organism and a kind of interplay of old technology and new technology and how that sort of um, sometimes the old technology still has its stay in the sun ahead of it. Uh, like the Tipex machine. <laughs> like the time. Yes. Yeah. Or, or like the resurgence of vinyl, maybe. Um, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not giving much away to say that there's a lot of steam trains in it. And um, which is obvious from the title of the book when, when that will be announced and i know next to nothing about steam trains and i had to do a deep dive into steam trains to get all the technical details right and i'm sure i've made some you know schoolboy errors that some train buff will haul me over the uh, <laughs> proverbial coals about but um yeah i think steam trains are another sort of um area that appeals to people with a, 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 a sort of slightly Jack Fenwick spectrumy um, sense of the world, and I could sort of see how um, there were similarities there for sure. Yeah, um, so that was that was kind of an interesting project. Anyway, that will be out in August with the paperback, the UK paperback of XX, which is coming out at the same time. Great. Well, let's talk again then. Okay, absolutely. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. All right. Hope you enjoyed that. After I stopped the recording, Ryan and I actually chatted for an hour longer had I known we could have had a part two. So hopefully he'll come on the show again when his next book is out later this year. And pick up XX. I highly recommend it. Definitely one of the books of the year. And if you want to pick up my Nick Cave's bar, that would be very much appreciated as well. There's still more reviews coming in, which I'm pretty psyched about. There's more Southpaw coming, too. There's currently 55 stories up at youngsouthpaw.com and a bunch over at YouTube. And I did a Zoom set the other night with some new material, so hopefully there'll be more of those coming. Thanks very much for listening. If you want to subscribe to the show or share this episode, that'd be much appreciated. We were talking about how DJ Food and Ryan's sister made an actual album of the Celestial Mechanic record that's reviewed in the book. You can find it in an EP at celestialmechanic.bandcamp.com. 
I'm going to play us out now with my favorite track from the record, London.